Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the show by donating using the Patreon link in the description below. And with Patreon there's a number of different tiers. My personal favorite though is the $3 tier because with that you get access to the Discord channel. And it's a growing little community that we have going so far, bouncing ideas about different biotech companies, so it's a lot of fun. And I also want to thank everybody, because since the last show I did, we've hit 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. So I want to endlessly thank all of you for clicking that button. It, uh, it means a lot. I, I think it gives me a, a little extra functionality from YouTube, so I'll try to take advantage of that whenever I can. But with that, we got a packed show today, so I want to get into all the fun stuff. And we're going to talk about four different companies. We're going to talk about Axivant Therapeutics, Actinium, Biogen, and then the main story today I want to touch on is a company called Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. And they have a weight loss drug that I think is uh, it's unique, and they're in an interesting space with what they're targeting specifically with regards to rare diseases. So we're going to get into them and uh, figure out whether or not there's a position here that we should take advantage of. So with that, uh, let's get into it. And the first company I want to talk about today is Axivant Gene Therapies, ticker symbol AXGT. Although they have since rebranded themselves as of November 13th to be a company called SIO Gene Therapies, ticker symbol SIOX, I believe. And usually companies only make name changes or rebrands when they want to hide past negativity. So right out of the gate, you should expect that um, things are not going well for Axivant. But to get into the meat of what I want to talk about, the company is now trading at a $100 million market cap. And that is the result of a significant decline after they announced data from their Parkinson's disease gene therapy program. And they gave an update in early October, then they announced they were going to give a, a follow-on update on October 30th during their virtual Parkinson's R&D uh, day that they did. So to give a bit of background on the therapy, the point of the therapy is to introduce genes that are involved in processing levodopa. And levodopa is the... Um, main treatment for Parkinson's disease right now that alleviates symptoms but doesn't actually change the course of the disease. So what Axivant and Oxford Biomedica, the company that licensed out the drug, want to do is rather than have patients take an oral daily dose where you get significant peaks and troughs in terms of the pharmacokinetics, a gene therapy would hopefully produce kind of a steady state amount of levodopa in the brain of Parkinson's disease patients and also supersede the need for patients to take a dose every day. So that is the goal. And then overall, hopefully there would be an improvement in readouts associated with function of, of these patients. So that's the goal. And the treatment was originally developed by a company called Oxford Biomedica. And the original name was ProSavin. But after Oxford Biomedica produced the original data for it, they weren't really interested in taking the molecule further on in development. And I thought that was kind of funny, and I spent some time trying to research what was going on, like why they didn't want to develop it further. And it seems like the company itself just isn't really interested in going deep into clinical development. they rather do the early stuff and then hopefully license it out to another company that would take it through those further trials. So it took maybe 8 to 10 years before Axivant came along and wanted to license this therapy and take it into those clinical trials. And so that's kind of the result of what we're seeing now. But in that time, the company, Oxford Biomedica, changed the therapy. And what this led to is a 10 times increase in levodopa expression. And I thought this was particularly interesting because the therapeutic range for levodopa is actually very tight. 
You don't want too much levodopa and you don't want too little levodopa. You really want that good steady state. So I thought it was interesting that the company decided to go for this wildly increased expression, given that they saw some positive data with ProSavin. So I'll touch on that in just a second. But the updates that we saw included data from this cohort of patients. The data that we were expecting originally was an N of 4 in this cohort 2, so this specific dose of virus that they gave the patients. But unfortunately, only two patients were able to get data collected, and this is due to a COVID-related effect, as well as a general withdrawal from the study. So only half of the patients' data is what we're looking at right now. So it's tough to know if any effect that we're seeing is just a outlier or it actually is the true effect of AXO Lenti PD. So just to look at the data quickly, and I'm blowing this up on the page here, the average UPDRS Part 3 motor score improvement was 21 for these two patients, and this is higher than the Cohort 1, and it's quite a bit higher, maybe 30-40% higher than the ProSavin, uh, the original molecule, when that data was collected quite a while ago. So we see an improvement, but the issue is it's only an N of 2. So we don't really know if this is valid data. We don't really know if this is enough to get approval of the IND, which they're going to be filing soon. So for that reason, the stock got hammered. And then the company also hit us with this manufacturing delay. They said that their sham-controlled phase 2 trial will not enroll until later than 2021. So what they're saying here is that it will take over a year for them just to enroll the trial for this sham controlled phase two, which is probably the most important trial for them um, in order to see that there is in fact an effect of Axolenti PD in Parkinson's patients. So after they gave us that news, the stock dropped even further. And this also led to a lawsuit. I don't know if some people saw this, but apparently there's a law firm that's suing Axivant because they are alleging that the company may have known about the manufacturing delayed and didn't tell investors until too late. So I don't know many details about that. I'm obviously not a lawyer, but I think that is part of the reason why they're rebranding as well, because there's this pending litigation now. So where we're at with the company is they are planning a cohort three. This is the sham controlled trial, but the issue is it's going to take forever for them to get going on this. The other thing is that the dose they're using is three times the viral dose of cohort two. And I, I pose here are there potential issues with that. And the reason why is, if you look at the figure I have on the right here, that the levodopa concentrations you want in the brain have to be very, very tight. And the reason for this is that too much levodopa leads to dyskinesia, and too little leads to akinesia or rigidity. So as the disease progresses, this range gets narrower and narrower. So I'm kind of curious to know why are they selecting this dose specifically if they're seeing an improvement of 21 already with cohort 2. More doesn't necessarily mean better with Parkinson's disease, but in this case, potentially more could mean that more cells in the brain get those enzymes and they're able to produce more of a steady state of levodopa that actually does fit within this therapeutic range. So to be a bull here on this trial, your justification is that we might be in a lower area of the therapeutic range and that there is still potentially better levodopa concentration that could be achieved with more viral dose. So that's what we're hoping for if we expect a positive readout in this cohort 3 trial. The company is also filing an IND and an IMPD with the FDA as well as the EMA for Europe, and that is going to depend on the data they've collected to date. 
Now, is it likely they're going to get approval? I mean, I think it's possible, but given that they only have an N of two in this latest cohort, it could add a little bit of risk to the company. With regards to their cash position, as of Q2 of 2020, they're sitting at $61 million, and their net loss is uh, 8.6. So as you can imagine, they're going to have to raise before we see any significant data from their Parkinson's disease program. But the silver lining is that they are expecting some readouts from their other programs, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, I have here that they did do their name change, so keep that in mind. The ticker is now SIOX rather than AXGT. And one thing that they're going to be releasing is data from their AXO AAV GM1 gene therapy. And this is for a rare disease called GM1 gangliosidosis. And what they're going to report is six-month top-line data in low-dose juvenile cohort type 2. And they're going to do this before the end of year 2020. So we've talked a little bit about rare diseases in my last video. We touched on crystal. And they're also looking at rare diseases. So... If Axivant can show some positive data here, I do think there is some upside. But really why I think I'm holding is I think they might be overstating the manufacturing delays. I can't wrap my head around the fact that they think that it'll take an entire year before they get enough Axolenti PD for them to do their next trial. So I am holding kind of reluctantly. I want to see this GM gangliosidosis data. And I want to see you know where we're going to be in terms of the actual manufacturing delay. So it's for those reasons that I'm holding. It's not a very strong conviction hold, I'll be honest. But I think based on where the company's trading at right now, we're a slight premium over their their cash. So I want to see where it goes. And you know, I'll make my decision as we get into maybe Q1, Q2 of 2021 and see whether or not it's true that they have made no advancement in enrollment or in getting the manufacturing of the of the drug. So that's Axivant, very disappointing. The next company I want to talk about is Actinium Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol ATNM, and they're sitting at a $100 million market cap right now. And this is after they announced all of these different posters and presentations that they're going to be presenting at ASH. The 62nd Annual Society of Hematology meeting is going to take place on December 5th to 8th of 2020. And Actinium has a number of different things, and they're going to be talking about some early phase one data that they're doing, and I'm not as excited about that as I am in their phase three Sierra trial. And I just want to quote from their press release that they talked about this. They said, we look forward to presenting the IOMAB B data in further detail during the two oral presentations on the IOMAB B Sierra study at ASH in December. The company remains on track to report safety and feasibility data from 75% of the patients to be enrolled in Sierra as well as to complete the ad hoc interim analysis in the fourth quarter. So I think this is great. The fact that they have oral presentations, I think, is pretty bullish for me. The organizing committees that look at the abstracts have to make a decision on whether or not they're going to give an oral presentation or a poster presentation. Usually they pick the oral presentations for the more prestigious or exciting data. So for this reason, I think it's worth holding into it, holding the stock into the data to see what the readout is. Now, the company itself is kind of suspect. They have diluted over and over again. They have done reverse splits to maintain the price of the stock to prevent delisting. So I am excited to no longer hold this company. So as soon as the update happens from the 5th to the 8th, whenever their presentation is, I'm going to sell. Whether it's positive or negative, I just want out from the company. Um, I think the theory behind their technology is pretty interesting. But I just don't trust a management team. And over and over again, even if it's a good molecule, if the management team sucks, 
it's uh, it's tough to make a profit from a lot of those companies. So that's Actinium. wanted to mention that because I haven't touched on them in quite a while. Moving on, I wanted to give an update on Biogen. And the reason for this is that there was tons of drama surrounding the Aducanumab Advisory Committee. And so the ticker symbol for Biogen is BIIB. And they are trading now at around a 36, I think it might be closer to 40 now, billion dollar market cap. And the drama that we heard is that the advisory committee took place for the evaluation of aducanumab in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And so how these advisory committees go is that two days before the advisory committee date, at which point the committee members will actually vote, the briefing documents are released. And this is from the FDA, and it's, it's sort of an evaluation of the BLA that was submitted by the company and the FDA's opinion on what the company has presented. So you'll get actual feedback from the FDA on what they think about what Biogen is saying about their molecules. So how this works is that everybody gets to read these briefing documents and it gives the public a sense on whether or not the FDA is leaning one way or another and it kind of prompts the advisory committee, I would say. Now what happened after these documents were released is the stock rallied huge off of this news. And the reason for that is that it looked like the FDA is extremely positive on approval of aducanumab. And I'm just going to read a couple of quotes on why this is the case. Overall, the FDA tried to be kind of neutral and biased, but in so many of their comments, we see that they're in support of approval. And so I'll just read some of these. FDA agrees that the results from study 302 are highly persuasive, and the study is capable of providing the primary contribution to a demonstration of substantial evidence of effectiveness of aducanumab. Then one other quote I wanted to read, they say that, Biogen and the FDA have jointly concluded that study 301 does not represent evidence that anucanumab is ineffective. So just to explain these in a little bit more detail, Biogen did two phase three studies for aducanumab, and this is a molecule that reduces amyloid beta in the brain, and it does so very effectively. The problem is, though, that they did two of these studies, and study 301, the ENGAGE trial, showed no difference in effect, Whereas study 302, the EMERGE trial, I think I got that right, saw a significant improvement in Alzheimer's disease symptoms. So they had both of these studies and they did a futility analysis that canceled the studies and then they consulted with the FDA and they were allowed to proceed with them. So there was some drama around that, but eventually they ended up meeting with the FDA and the FDA said that they would welcome a biologics license application in order to get market authorization for aducanumab. So Biogen went ahead and submitted that. So I'll show the data quickly, and I don't know why this is so pixelated, but bear with me. Basically, the ENGAGE study showed no difference between the treatment and placebo groups, whereas EMERGE did. And you can also see on the left here that the amyloid PET scan does show, in fact, that aducanumab significantly reduces amyloid beta in the brain, but it just doesn't have an effect on clinical outcomes, the CDRSB, which is an evaluation of Alzheimer's disease uh, symptomology, we'll say, with regards to cognition or things like that. So we got a huge rally in the stock after the briefing documents came out because the FDA seemed to be so positive. They're saying here that study 302, the significantly different study, was highly persuasive that there's an effect. And then they say that study 301, the negative study, is not evidence that anucanumab doesn't work. So it's a very bullish signal from the FDA. Now, two days later on November 6th, the 
advisory committee actually met and they voted on a few different questions. The two questions that I wanted to show here I think are the most like nail in the coffin ones. The first question is, does study 302 emerge viewed independently and without regard to study 301 engage provide strong evidence that supports the effectiveness of aducanumab for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease? One person voted yes, eight voted no, and two are uncertain on the question. So brutal result here for Biogen. Uh, and by the way, the two who are uncertain on the question, maybe you should not be on a panel if you can't understand this question clearly. I know all of these people have to save face, so they want to be very careful with how they vote here, but still, the two uncertain, I think, is kind of funny. The second question, in light of the understanding provided by the exploratory analyses of study 301 and study 302, along with the results of study 103, and evidence of a pharmacodynamic effect on Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology, it is reasonable to consider study 302 as primary evidence of effectiveness of aducanumab for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. So is study 302 alone primary evidence of effectiveness of aducanumab? Zero voted yes, 10 voted no, and one uncertain. So that's it. Advisory committee overwhelmingly voting no on the approval, or not even the approval, but saying that aducanumab does not really have a convincing effect in Alzheimer's disease based on what Biogen has presented. So we're seeing here now that the FDA is kind of leaning towards approval. Advisory committee overwhelmingly says there is no efficacy or evidence of good efficacy of this drug. So the PDUFA date is on March 7th of 2021, but the FDA can act earlier. I would expect a no decision after this overwhelmingly negative advisory committee result. But as we've seen in the past, the FDA is not beholden to the advisory committee. They can act independently, and they don't really need to take them into consideration. But I think it's going to be very difficult for them to say yes after this brutal result from the advisory committee. And I think the advisory committee made the right call. I don't think the data is evidence that there is an effect of aducanumab. Is there going to be a path forward for Biogen if they do get a CRL here? I'm not so sure. Is a third... Phase 3 trial going to break the tie between study 301 and 302? I don't really know. But I think what I'm going to do maybe later in the year is do another look through Biogen and see whether or not they, uh, they are an investable company. They have a pretty strong pipeline, but obviously without aducanumab, their potential revenue expectations are going to be normalized a little bit. So that's Biogen. Pretty uh, interesting stuff. Now let's get to the main story for today, and the company we're talking about is called Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol RYTM. They traded on Friday the 13th at $22.06 per share, giving them a market cap of around $1 billion. Their Q3 2020 net loss was $34 million, and their Q3 2020 current assets sit at around $210 million, with around $16 million in current liabilities as of Q3 of 2020. And what this company is doing is they're targeting the MC4R pathway for rare obesity diseases. And the molecule that they're using is called setmelanotide, and this is a once-daily injectable selective agonist of the MC4 receptor. And they are developing a once-weekly formulation, but as of today, it's a once-daily subcutaneous injectable. And the diseases that they're looking at are treating are generally rare genetic obesity diseases. So the two main ones are POMC deficiency, 
the leptin receptor deficiency, and then two rare diseases that aren't specifically obesity, but that also happen to have obesity and type 2 diabetes associated with them. And these are called bardet beetle syndrome as well as Alstrom syndrome. I think I'm pronouncing that right. So to give a bit of background on the MCR4 pathway as well as POMC, the MCR4R stands for melanocortin 4 receptor, and it's a G-protein coupled receptor. You can look those up. They're very well characterized receptors, and they're very druggable targets. And this one in particular is expressed on neurons of the hypothalamus. So if you remember your neuroscience physiology, the hypothalamus receives signals from the pituitary gland in order to further act on distal locations through the endocrine system. Now, the molecule that does act on this receptor comes from another molecule called POMC, or pro-opiomelanocortin. And this is a precursor polypeptide that's produced in neurons of the pituitary gland. So cells of the pituitary gland produce POMC, and POMC isn't active on its own. It has to get cleaved into active peptides, and that's what this figure here is showing on the right. So POMC is cleaved multiple times and then further cleaved into more multiple times um, to create the actual active compounds that can then act on these receptors and affect cells appropriately. So the one molecule that's derived from POMC is called alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone, and this is the result of a number of specific regulatory events. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but basically POMC is produced in the pituitary gland, it's cleaved into a number of different peptides. One is alpha-MSH, and this will travel to the hypothalamus, stimulate the MCR4 receptor, causing a satiety feeling. So in order to properly regulate energy and hunger, you need this functional pathway. When there's problems in this pathway, whether it's on the POMC side or the MCR4 side or alpha-MSH side, uh, it can lead to dysfunctional appetite and energy expenditure. And this is, in fact, what we see in both rodent models as well as humans that have mutations or um, defects in these different molecules. So for POMC deficiency, there's an insufficient amount of alpha-MSH, and therefore you get no stimulation in the MCR4 receptor to stimulate satiety. And so what these patients end up doing is eating uncontrollably, and it leads to negative consequences associated with obesity. Leptin R, on the other hand, is a receptor found on the pituitary gland neurons, and I'm not going to get too many details on that, but deficiency in this receptor also leads to an inability to satiate, and patients eat too much, and they become obese. Now, to talk a little bit about uh, the dynamics of this is, in the body, there's two copies of every gene, as we know, and so in these diseases, if it's a homozygote recessive, you'll have two non-functional copies of the disease. And this is usually more severe than the heterozygote, but it's uh, usually much more rare. So that's kind of the trade-off here. The heterozygotes, on the other hand, inherited only one deficient copy from their parents, and they have another copy that might be able to restore function, but that's not often always the case. So the heterozygotes are usually, we'll say, less severe, but not always but there's significantly more of them in the population. So what the companies showed us in terms of the prevalence of this, this disease, POMC homozygotes, those are up to 500 in the US, leptin receptor deficiency up to 2000, Bardet beetle, we're looking at 2500, Alstrom around 1000. If we go to the heterozygotes though for POMC and leptin receptor deficiency, we're looking at 20,000 or more. And I found a study that actually 
puts this number at significantly higher than this. So I'll touch on this a little bit later, but just to preempt this is that the real value in this company is potentially getting an indication for the heterozygous leptin receptor or POMC deficient patients. To touch on pricing for a second, because there are in fact a number of pharmaceutical drugs out there approved for either obesity or type 2 diabetes. So remember that obesity and type 2 diabetes, they're distinct, but they're often comorbidities. So the doctor when looking to prescribe a treatment for obesity or type 2, they can really look at either types of drugs in order to see what works best for the patient, whether that's a pricing thing or a more effective mechanism. But when I took a little bit of a deeper dive in obesity itself, the cost of obesity-related health problems are around $3,500 per year. And you can see the citation I have below there. And the general advice of diet and exercise is basically ineffective for genetic obesity. These patients have a characteristic hormonal problem where they do not signal in their brain to stop eating. So diet and exercise, those things are really ineffective here. And that's where a pharmaceutical, like what Rhythm is proposing here, could really bring back that function in order to get them to regulate their hunger and energy expenditure. Now the thing is, there are already existing type 2 diabetes and obesity medications out there. And you have to think here, you know, do we really need to reproduce the pathway in the brain? Or could one of these other compounds that are way cheaper do that just as effective? So for obesity, two of the compounds that I wanted to mention, one is called Contrave, another one is Orlistat. Contrave sells for around $3,200 per year, and Orlistat sells for around $9,600 per year. Both of them have an effect of around 5% weight loss versus placebo. For type 2 diabetes, there's even more drugs out there, but the ones that have kind of a weight loss uh, side effect, we'll say, associated with them, Victoza, Semaglutide, and Trulicity, and they sell from between $9,600 to $11,500 per year. And Victoza is the one where I found data for. The average weight loss is around 6% per patient um, versus placebo. So in general, we need to think about pricing. You know, can set melanotide garner a significantly greater price if the effectiveness is the same? And if the effectiveness is higher, how much more are patients really going to be willing to pay for that drug, given that all of these other options are out on the market today. So that's something to consider when I put my model together and we can go back and forth on this really. So to talk a little bit about the clinical development and the data, I wanted to present what they've shown so far. And in phase three for POMC or leptin receptor deficiency, they looked at both of these different diseases and n of around 10 patients each, which isn't huge, but the magnitude of the effect was so strong that I don't think it'll be troublesome for them to get approval. But what they saw here is that 80% of patients for POMC deficiency saw a 10% or greater weight loss compared to controls. The mean weight reduction was 25.4%. So compare that to what I just mentioned on the already approved drugs where the average weight loss is only 5%. This is significantly higher. They also looked at a hunger reduction score and here it was reduced by 27.8%. The leptin receptor deficiency on the other hand around 45.5% of patients had a 10% or greater weight loss, and the mean weight reduction was 12.5%. So overall, this is very positive data. It's a lot better than what's seen in the existing therapies. And so they've submitted their license application, and the PDUFA date is actually November 27th of this year. So I personally think that approval is priced in. 
even though it's a small trial, the magnitude of effect was so strong that I don't think they're going to see much trouble for approval. And I think this is kind of priced into the stock. But a couple of things I wanted to note here. Generally, the compound is well tolerated. There are some side effects, including darkening of the skin. So that's something that some patients might not be totally interested in. But they did mention that discontinuations were rare. And they also mentioned here that only 500 patients have been treated to date. So that's not a huge population, I would say, but given that these are rare diseases, usually there's a fewer number of patients that are treated, so I don't think this would be an impediment to approval. When it comes to the other indications, we've got Bardet Beetle and Alstrom syndromes. And so I'm showing the phase two data here, the change in body weight for Bardet Beetle, we're looking at negative 16% at 12 months, which is very strong. Um, they also see a respective decrease in the hunger score. When it comes to Alstrom data, it's a little bit less impressive. They had one patient that actually saw a 1% increase, but then two of the other patients saw a 20% and a 6% decrease in weight. So that overall, I think, is beneficial. And they are doing this study in phase three right now, and we're going to be seeing the pivotal data in Q4 of 2020 or Q1 of 2021. So this is another upcoming catalyst for the company. I also think that this data is generally priced into the stock. I think they're expecting positive data to come out of this. But when it comes to the commercial launch for this, I'm less bullish only because these patients also have other comorbidities such as type 2 diabetes. So I think unless the drug is priced appropriately, the doctor won't have that much incentive to prescribe something like Victoza over this unless the weight problem is that much out of control that they need something that can significantly reduce body weight much more than Victoza can. So it's a bit of an issue with pricing and I think what the doctor's opinion is. So we'll leave that aside, but I think where the main clinical opportunity lies with this product is in the heterozygous population in POMC or leptin receptor deficiency. And so what they're doing here is this is a phase two study that they showed a little bit of data for and they're looking at a basket of different genetic disorders associated with obesity. But the main ones that I'm interested in are these high impact loss of function group. So the reason why they're calling it this is because some patients might be heterozygotes, but they don't have a significant problem with their obesity. And this could be that the mutation associated with POMC or leptin isn't in a place that leads to dysfunction of the receptor, or there is still some functionality left in the receptor. So this is a very heterogeneous population. And for this reason, they're looking at a basket of them in order to parse out which patients might benefit from this drug and which ones aren't really worth targeting. So what we're seeing here in three different patients from this high impact loss of function group, uh, the average weight loss is around 9%. And what this tells me is that there's just variability in these patients and that what the company needs to do is figure out who can really benefit from this drug in order for us to get a better sense of which patient population they can go after and get a better understanding of the total market potential. They mention here what they call other subgroups, and it's not really clear to me what these other kinds of subgroups are. I assume it has to do with, and I'm just going to go back here, I assume it has to do with SRC1, SH2B1, but it wasn't abundantly clear to me in the corporate presentation. Suffice to say, though, that they are seeing a improvement in weight loss in these patients. Now, is it as impressive as POMC and leptin receptor homozygous deficient patients? Not quite, but this is still very early data. So I think that the 
movement of the stock after this phase two study is going to be much more impactful than the PDUFA date for the POMC and leptin R homozygotes or the Bardet Beetle and Alstrom phase three data that's coming out. And they mentioned that they're going to give an update from this phase two basket of high impact loss of function patients before the end of 2020. So that I really think is the catalyst to watch for. So here's my valuation, my model will say. The value of the homozygous POMC leptin receptor in the USA and EU, I put them at around 5,000 patients and I'm giving a pricing of around $15,000 per year, which I think is generous. And so if we do that math, we're looking at a maximum potential revenue if they get full penetration of $75 million per year. And again, I think there's problems with assuming they're gonna get max penetration here. For Bardet, Beetle, and Alstrom, I'm assuming 6,000 patients, and I think this is very generous too, at $15,000 per year. So with max penetration of the market, and again, I think this is a very lofty goal, uh, we can expect $90 million in revenue per year. So if we add that to their cash position, which is around 210, we're looking at just shy of around $400 million. And keep in mind the market cap for Rhythm is sitting at $1 billion today. So there's about a two point times premium of what their cash and potential market is just from these two that I think are obviously already priced in. Now, the value of the heterozygotes is extremely variable, and this is similar to what we discussed in the crystal video, so check that out if you want to get a little bit more of a take from myself and Michael on uh, what we think about that. But the estimates that I've seen on heterozygotes for leptin receptor deficiency could be as high as 1 in 1,050 people. So if we extrapolate that to the United States, we're looking at around 314,000 patients in the USA. And if we multiply that by $15,000 per year from uh, pricing, we're looking at $4.7 billion of max revenue if they can get full penetration. So there's a huge market potential here. And this doesn't even include the POMC deficiency heterozygote patients. Now, are all of them going to be necessarily required to get treated with this molecule? No, a lot of them could use those other pharmaceuticals. But the fact is there's a huge potential addressable market here that Rhythm could take advantage of if they are priced appropriately and if they can show really impressive efficacy in these heterozygotes. So that I think is also another challenge is that with the three patients we see here, the average weight loss is only around 9% and patients could get that today with the existing therapies that are on the market. So if Rhythm can show a significant efficacy and they can show it in a number of different heterozygotes in both the POMC and the leptin receptor deficiency, I do think there is some upside. But having said all of that, my verdict on this company is I'm going to take no position. The bold case is that the November 27th approval is going to be a general de-risking of the company. If they can get the FDA to approve it, in general, it's going to be a little bit easier for them to add on indications to it if they see efficacy. Also, there's a number of different bullish catalysts. So the pivotal phase three for Bardet Beetle and Alstrom is coming up, and they're going to do this phase two for basket of conditions. So if all of those things work out in their favor, I do think there is upside. If they can see all of this efficacy in those different heterozygote groups, and the efficacy is much more impressive than what's existing today, there is upside. But the bear case is, I think there's going to be serious concerns about adoption. If they don't price the drug appropriately, I think that doctors would be hard-pressed to prescribe it when there are other options on the market that patients could first try. So given that 
doctors might use this as more of a third or fourth line for some of these obesity patients, I think it might be tough for them to get serious adoption. And with that, you know, the meme is short the launch, so that could be a play here. The other issue with adoption is that this is a daily injectable. They're doing an, a weekly injectable, but is that much better than an oral therapy? I don't really think so. I think patients would much rather take an oral molecule than a daily injectable. And this just makes it even harder for doctors to prescribe it if patients know that there's an oral version of a weight loss drug that they could try first. So I also mentioned the cost limitations here. So the company is going to have competition, like I mentioned earlier. So they're going to be hard pressed to really price the drug too much higher than what's existing out there, even though there's greater efficacy. So I think this is going to be a struggle for the company as well. And then I also mentioned with existing competition, what is the realistic market penetration? I think this is much more significant than other companies I may have covered. Because there are so many other options and because type 2 diabetes is a comorbidity and there's a lot of good molecules out there for type 2 diabetes, doctors might want to prescribe those first, see how patients do, and then maybe move on to setmelanotide. So we'll see about that. Oh, the other issue I wanted to mention too is that the issue with heterozygotes is that the company needs to roll out testing for them. So if a patient is obese, they need to get actually genetic tested to see if they have a leptin receptor deficiency or a POMC deficiency in order for Rhythm to then go in and say, oh, here's the right molecule you should be taking, it's set melanotide because we fix this dysfunctional pathway. So Rhythm has an even greater barrier because they want to show obese patients that, oh, if you're affected with these specific rare diseases, we can treat you with that and it's probably better than just a general weight loss drug. So that is kind of another hurdle and something that the company is mentioned that they're rolling out, but it'll just take time to really dial this in. And then the last question that I have for the bear case is how accurate are the estimates of prevalence and incidence? So I gave a study that showed 1 in 1,050 for leptin receptor deficiency. That is a huge potential market, but is that really accurate? And if it's overstating the patient population, maybe the value of the company today is a lot lower. So having said all of that, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. But if we see that the company does fall into, say, the $15 to $20 range, I might take a position in anticipation of good data. And to kind of match that with what institutions are doing, I looked at fintel.io and we saw that in August, Baker Brothers and RA Capital took a position or they had a position with an average price of around $18.76. And then the November 6th filing date, we saw that NEA Management and BlackRock have positions in the company and their average price is around $22. So really, if you took a position today, you're sitting pretty close to what BlackRock and NEA Management are looking. And if the company were to fall maybe closer to 15, I might be willing to take a position. But right now, I think the company is rather fairly valued. And it really does depend on that phase two basket of conditions. So that's what I have for Rhythm. For the next couple weeks, the drama that we're going to be seeing really has to do with presidential uncertainty. We're seeing so far that looks like Joe Biden is going to win. There are a lot of states that are still being contested right now. And President Trump doesn't look like he's backing down. So we're going to see what happens, but the market really did rally after the election. And this, I believe, is due to a removal of uncertainty because there's a good chance that the Senate is going to be Republican and the Congress is going to stay Democrat. So that kind of gridlock is going to be difficult for any kind of drug pricing legislation to go through. The Senate, there is one seat in Georgia that's going on to a runoff vote, and I think that'll happen in the new year. And if that does go Democrat, we're looking at a 50-50 
And then if Biden does win, Kamala Harris as vice president would be the tiebreaker. So we're really looking at a total Democrat governing system. And that, I think, might be bearish for the market. But right now, it looks like we're, we're sitting okay with gridlock between Congress and Senate. The next thing that we saw and that we're going to look forward to is COVID vaccine data. And now we saw how the market responded to the Pfizer vaccine. It was extremely bullish, although we did see a pullback. But I believe Moderna is going to have a readout soon. And this is also an mRNA vaccine. So if the Pfizer vaccine looked pretty good, then it begs the question, maybe the Moderna vaccine could be good as well. So we'll see about that. But if we get two vaccines that look pretty good, I think we could see further upside in the stock market. Now, there are some considerations with mRNA vaccines with regards to cold storage, but I think the market will be able to figure that out and will be able to deliver cold storage. So for biotech specifically, though, Q4 updates I'm still waiting for are from Trill, TGTX, BioXL, Actinium, as well as SIOX, which is Axivan Gene Therapies, the rebranded. So we'll look forward to that and hopefully it'll take my portfolio to the moon. Just to give a quick portfolio wrap up, I took a position in Orenia. They got really hammered on the dry eye readout that they had, but I think it's totally overblown and that just from the lupus indication, the company is worth significantly more here. So I took a small position and we'll see how that goes. Uh, I also sold Maradi on the data and the company's trading actually quite a bit higher than what I sold it at, 203. So Congrats to the longs there. I think the data looked pretty good. And I touched on that a little bit with my last video with Michael. So overall, we're sitting at around 4%. And what's balanced the failures I saw in Cyclerion and Axivant are being made up for in Trillium and TGTX. So hopefully the readouts that we see from them continue to push and will make up for my bad decisions. But we're pretty much in line with the Dow Jones and every other market has been rallying pretty nicely in the last few weeks and volatility continues to go down for them. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up there, but I appreciate all the support. Thank you all for donating to the show, for hitting the subscribe and like button. It does mean a lot, and I am seeing the result in the numbers. So thank you for that. Let me know what you think in the comments below. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up, but we'll see you guys next time.